we'll go back to the end of Acts 18 to start. But I want to talk about just kind of a main idea. If you're a note taker, these are all in the app. These are under where it says notes, but just kind of a main idea today. The church is a community of transformed people. And when transformed people engage locally, they see entire cities changed to glorify God. I had a, a cool experience yesterday. I got to go and speak to, um, I don't know exactly what they call this board, but Valley Christian Schools has preschool, elementary school, middle school, high school. They've got all these schools together. And whatever their collective board that oversees all of the, the schools that they have, I got to spend some time with them yesterday. They were doing a, an in-house retreat where their board was gathering together. I think it's called their executive board. And they asked me to come in and share with them. I got to spend uh, almost two hours with them, longer than we had anticipated. And we just got to, I got to spend time with them. And, and that was great. And I would tell you that just because it was fun to do. But at the end of it, one of the board members came up and introduced himself to me. He knew who I was. I've spoken at their schools. I've spoken to their boards before. I've spoken to chapels, to their high schools. And, uh, and he introduced himself. And he works here in the city of Cerritos. He works in the Parks and Recs Department here in the city of Cerritos. Now, the reason that's important is for the last two and a half years, while we are in the city of Los Alamitos, we connected deeply to the city through their Park and Recs Department. In fact, they will be doing a trunk or treat this year while well, we're doing one here. Same night, they're doing one in Los Al that we participated in last year. Uh, in fact, last year, we provided all the trunks, if you will. We provided, I think it was 25 or 30 Jeeps that went out there and did stuff. We provided games and booths and volunteers. And as we made our move to Cerritos, one, there's been an ongoing question in the church. I just got it this week in our community group. Are we going to still serve in Los Al? And then the other question is, are we going to serve Cerritos? And so the city of Los Al asked us that question. And, I said, yeah, and we said, yes, we still want to serve in Los Al. We're going to start figuring out how to be here locally and also how to serve a city that we have made, uh, we've made great relationship with and that we have made impact in. And so we did that through really serving in the Park and Rec's department. So to meet someone, because really when I answered this question Thursday night in our community group, I said, I don't know how we're going to connect with this city yet. I haven't, found a, uh, I haven't met anybody or found a way in that we'll, we'll begin to do. And then come Saturday, just a couple days later, God provides a way. And so we're excited. We're excited about that. Now we've got to balance how do we serve the city we're in and serve the city that we, that we love and that we're connected to but we're no longer in. That's an easy thing to solve in the sense that there's more than one of us. We can figure this out, right? But what I want to talk about is that deep connectivity to a city. Three years ago, as we went mobile and we knew where we were going, we were going to the city of Los Alamitos. Here's the prayer and the language we began to use. We wanted to be in Los Al. And we said, God, uh, we want to be the kind of church that if we ever left the city, they would be bombed that we left. We want to be the kind of church that is so ingrained in the city that, that blesses the city that if we were to ever move, for whatever reason, we were to ever disappear, that they would miss us. And we did that. We did that in Los Al. I have the email saying, listen, we're super bummed you couldn't find anything in Los Al and that you had to, you know, I mean, Cerritos isn't like a world away, but, but they, were, they were bummed that we were moving. Hold that thought for a minute. I want to work through the story in Acts. I want to talk about Paul and the city of Ephesus. I want to look at the engagement between the people of God. Now, don't think institutions like the institution of the church or the institution of the city, though we deal with that today. 
I want you to see the transformed people that are following Jesus, and I want to see how they impact the community they're in. Let's pray, and then we will get to Scripture. Jesus, we love you. I, again, just pray and ask, would you come and would you speak? We want to be a people that impact our city and our community, our neighborhoods, our families, our workplaces. We want to take the life change that you've given us, the joy and the strength and the courage that you've given us, we want to give it away. Jesus, we want to serve this city, and as of yet, we, we, we haven't gotten there. I know we're brand new here. But I pray that these little steps, these little connections, these people that we meet would be doors into the community that you've, you've brought us to. Help us to be transformed people, changed by your gospel. Help us to be those people in this community. Jesus, will you speak? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Acts 18, we're going to pick up in verse 24. It says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scripture, and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So there's a man named Apollos. He's a Jewish guy who, it says, he is competent in the scripture. So now, again, if you're brand new to the Bible, just understand this. When we talk about a Bible, you'll often hear terms Old Testament, New Testament. Really, the first two-thirds of the Bible is before Jesus entered into human history, and then the last third is after his life, his death, his resurrection, and the birth of the church is that last third. We just call that the Bible, but if you were a Jew 2,000 years ago, what you would call your Bible is what we would call the Old Testament. So Apollos is a Jewish man competent in the scriptures. Paul, who we'll pick up with in just a minute, he is also a religious leader, well-educated in the Bible, well-educated in the Old Testament. And, and what we're seeing here is that the birth of Christianity really takes place inside the Jewish community first, as Jesus entered into human history as a Jewish man. And his early disciples were Jewish. Now, his message transcended Judaism. And his church is now moving beyond Judaism. We saw really a big pivot last week in Acts 18 as this church is birthed in a non-Jewish home. So the first meeting place for this church in a city last week in Corinth is now birthed in a non-Jewish man's home. That's the starting point. Many of you guys have been a part of church plants or small churches that have met in homes and they've grown and they've gained a little traction and then moved into a building and, and this church has its roots in that too. Starting in a living room with a pastor in a small group, starting with Bible studies, growing and growing and moving on into moving into a place like this or, or a building, a permanent facility. And that's what takes place. And for the first time last week in Acts 18, earlier in this very chapter, the church begins for the first time in a non-Jewish home. So what we're seeing is this, this shift in Acts 13 and 14 and this shift in Acts 17 and 18 as really God is moving the church outside of its Jewish paradigm, if you will, outside of its comfort zone inside of Judaism and moving it into non-Jewish places. That's good for us as most of us are not Jewish, right? And so as this gospel is spreading, you can see that it's gone beyond its Jewish roots today. But now there's early leaders that are Jewish leaders like Apollos. And what we're told is that Apollos is well educated in scripture. So he's able to take the Old Testament and point to how Jesus is the promise of the Old Testament, how God has fulfilled all the promises of the Old Testament waiting on that Messiah, that that, that Messiah was Jesus, the promise was Jesus. 
And so he's going into this community in Ephesus, a very non-Jewish place with a small percentage of Jews, and he is proclaiming to them that Jesus is the promised one. And as he is doing this, what happens is Christianity begins to take root there, but there's a, there's, what it says is interesting. It says this, that he is an eloquent man, competent in scriptures, and he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. So he'd been told about Jesus. And being fervent in spirit or excited, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he is out there telling the things of Jesus. But the only thing he knew of was the baptism of John. Now, this takes a little effort because John is John the Baptist. Early in the Gospels, the Gospels point to a Jewish man named John who's odd. He is the first prophet in about 400 years, the first one to speak on behalf of God after 400 years of silence. And he does it from out in the wilderness. And he wears clothes of like camel's hair. He has a strange diet and is an odd guy. All right? You would love him. He'd fit right in right here. Okay? But his message is a message of repentance. But that's, that's not new. A message of repentance is not new. If you're unfamiliar with the term repentance, repentance just means turning from the way you are and heading towards Jesus. It's an old military term that when militaries or battles were being lost, they would turn and run. The, the general on the hill or the captain on the hill would yell repent, and what that meant was turn and run for your life. That's what repentance is. It's turning from sin and really running for your life. And John is proclaiming this message to turn and really run, run to Jesus, or run towards God in this case. What's different about John is he is telling the religious community to repent. You see, the Jews had this practice of obeying the law, and, and, and Jewish men were circumcised when they were just a few days old as an infant, and that they lived under the covenant of the law, and they took on the covenant symbols, and that very thing there was what made them followers of God. Now, when people, non-Jewish people, would come to faith, what they would do is they would take them through a, a process of cleansing them from their past and bringing them into the community, and that process was baptism. So they would take non-Jewish people and they would, they would wash them with water in a way of saying washing away the sinful world behind them and then they would enter in and they would take on the Jewish symbols. Men would endure circumcision. They would go through and celebrate Passover and the different feasts and they would take on that. And so here's what happens now. John, after 400 years of God not speaking to his people, John comes out and he begins to call Jews to baptism and repentance. So needless to say, the Jewish community didn't like him a whole lot. Uh, he lived out in the wilderness, but he was gaining massive traction as God had put his hand on him. But he was calling the religious to repentance. And so now here's what we see. This baptism of John is a baptism of repentance. What the story in Acts is pressing into, that the baptism that Jesus calls us to is a bit different. Yes, it has some cleansing aspects to it. But more so, it identifies us with the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the reason that's important is that the life of Jesus, the sinless life of Jesus, as Jesus, God become flesh, entered into human history, Jesus lives the life that you and I are called to live, but we have failed. So Jesus goes and lives that life. God in the flesh lives it for us and then gives his life in trade for ours. So Jesus, God, human, sinless, takes on the penalty of death on a cross. And then the author of life somehow submits to death. 
is laid in a grave for three days and then raises from the grave, offering new life in him. So the difference between a baptism of repentance and a baptism, a Trinitarian baptism, or a baptism of Jesus is that there's an offer of life change. There there is a calling towards a transformed life. So when we see baptisms today, in fact, in one week we will be doing baptisms, our first baptisms on this campus. Pretty excited about that, right? When we do that, what we will do is we will take those being baptized and we will say these words. We baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now die to the flesh and we will submerge them in water. Arise in Christ and we will bring them out of the water. And here's what takes place in that moment. Not only are those being baptized making a public profession of faith, but they are being cleansed from their past. They are being buried into death with Jesus. They are coming out with a newness of life with a promise that Jesus says that if you are baptized, I will pour out my Holy Spirit on you. I will cleanse you from your sin. I will give you new life. And this is, this is how we celebrate that. That is a means of grace. It is a time where God does something supernatural with us. That he meets us in that moment. There's nothing magic about the water. There's nothing supernatural about the words, but there's God. And that in that baptism, not only do we recognize that we're being cleansed of sin, but we also recognize that we're being given a new life. See, a modern-day era church or commonly a struggle in the modern-day era church is a lot of message of forgiveness, but not a lot of pointing to new life. That we will be a forgiven people, but not a transformed people. So watch as this story plays out. Verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Sorry, I'm still trying to figure out where this thing is going to go. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So Priscilla and Aquila, we met them earlier, we met them last week earlier in this chapter. They are now leaders in the early church, and they hear this man who is proclaiming great and true things about Jesus. And they go to him and they hear his message, and what they do is they find a gap in his message. Right? As he is proclaiming the gospel, as he's proclaiming the good news about Jesus, what they do is they hear this life transformation piece missing. They hear lots about the death of Jesus. They hear lots about how Jesus is the promise of God, but what they don't hear, they're, they're hearing this, and they're hearing this message, and it's like they're hearing this build of these things, and like, yes, this is great, and then it just doesn't go far enough. Like, there's a lot of builder, but it never crescendos into, listen, if you want to be different, and you have found, you've come to the end of yourself, you're like, man, I am so trapped in being this person that I am. And you're hearing this gospel message, and you're like, yes, I want, I want that Jesus, I want this, and then you're just missing, but then I'll be stuck this way forever, or I'm some forgiven version of myself. Priscilla and Aquila go, no, there's more. There's more. Jesus actually transforms life. Jesus actually takes those internal pieces of you that are broken and begins to heal them and put them back together and changes lives, right? Most of us sitting here all would recognize that transformation that's taken place in Christ, right? I I share of mine often of how I came to faith and and the person I was in the past and just just the broken, jacked up mess that I was and how Jesus is changing that. I'm not perfect. I haven't you know, fixed everything, but that how Jesus is transforming me. So they go to Apollos and they begin to explain the way of God 
more accurate, the way of Jesus more accurately, they begin to fill in some of the blanks. Hebrews 6.1 says this, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Here's what the author of Hebrews says to the Jewish community as he writes to a Jewish audience. He says this, let us leave the elementary doctrine, the beginning, the roots of the gospel, the beginning things. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works of faith towards God. Here's what he's saying. Too often there are followers of Jesus that are just on this hamster wheel of sin and repentance and sin and repentance and sin. It's like they're running and running and running and going nowhere. Because they wake up in the morning and they ask God for forgiveness from all their sins and then they go out and they're trapped into the same thing day after day. And they go on with their life in this series of frustrated sin, repentance, sin, which often leads to shame and distance from God. And then they come back and they return and they repent honestly repent and want to be different, but they're trapped in this fleshly work thing. And what the church is explaining to this man right now is, listen, there's more here. The Holy Spirit transforms lives because Jesus rose from the grave. See, if it was just forgiveness, see, Jesus accomplished that forgiveness by the time he was laid in a tomb. But for us to get new life, he had to have new life. And so Jesus raising from the grave gives us new life. It says so, verse 27, And when he, Apollos, wished to cross into Ikea, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he had powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. They send this leader off as he desires to move on to a new town. And what they do is they kind of send a letter of recommendation to that town where there's already believers and leaders and saying, this is a good guy. Like he's been here doing a good work among the Jewish people. And he had some holes in his gospel. We probably all have holes in our doctrine, holes in our beliefs, things we're not sure of, things we may be getting wrong. But they begin to clean some of that up, and they send him on to the next city so that other leaders can pour into him too. An incomplete gospel. For those of you that are note takers, Apollos is transformed by a more complete gospel. When we land in a place of perpetual repentance, seeing little victory in our lives, it is a gospel issue. We are missing pieces of the gospel when we're not seeing transformation take root in our lives. We're missing pieces of what Jesus has done on our behalf. See, when we say gospel, the, the gospel is not just this good news that at some point in time enters into your life and introduces you to Jesus, then you move on to something else. The gospel is the very work and accomplishment of Jesus that for a lifetime the Holy, Holy Spirit will spend applying to you. That you will see this transformation in the gospel because Jesus has, has been victorious over or Jesus paid the penalty of or Jesus applies newness to you on your behalf. That the gospel is the very thing that we spend a lifetime letting it transform us. As long as we're here on earth, it is that gospel. It is the accomplishment, the work of Jesus applied to us by the Holy Spirit that continually changes our life. So they sent him on with a more complete gospel. When we are lacking things in our life, we are missing pieces of the gospel. Chapter 19, verse 1, it says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. 
There he found some disciples. So the story in Acts, oddly enough, is going to stay in this city while some leaders changed. Now, for the rest of what we're going to probably primarily do is follow Paul. But right now, what Luke, the author of Acts, is giving us is this history of this church in Ephesus. Now, Apollos leaves, Priscilla and Aquila are still there, and Paul comes into the city. Verse 2 says, And he, meaning Paul, said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So here's Paul coming in, and he's coming in on the heels of this, of this, the birth of this church in Ephesus that's been led by a very well-intentioned, very good man who understood Jesus, and he began to believe that it's Jesus that God has promised to us. It's Jesus that's the fulfillment of scriptures, and so he's proclaiming this, and he's telling others, and others are believing, but his gospel message, his gospel only goes so far, and when other leaders hear him, they begin to clean up his gospel. Paul shows up, and he begins to hear this, and he hears this in the people, and he says, you're missing this huge thing. You are missing the life transformation. I, I, I often try and explain it like this. If I were to, if I were just to confess all the sins that I, I, I have, have done in my life or have been done to me, all these things that have mounted up on my life, if I were just to, to pile them up like words in a pile in front of me, you can just imagine this massive mountainous pile of sin in front of me. And imagine that God just looked at me and said, Jeff, okay, here's all, that's all, all this stuff is true about you. All these things are just huge. But I'm not going to hold them against you anymore. I mean, uh, that's a good message, right? Like, and, I, and I, I've done some horrible things. And to say, you know what, I'm not going to hold you accountable for those. But they're still there. They still define you. That would be heartbreaking. I don't want to be defined by those things. Even if I'm not held accountable for them anymore, I want to be different. So God says, listen, in Christ, when Christ died, those sins were forgiven. But when Christ came out of the tomb, they were swept away. And you are now new. Right? It's a different message. Am I right? That is a different gospel. And the way that those things are swept away and the way that you're made new is that Jesus has ascended back to heaven and he's poured out his Holy Spirit on all who believe and would be baptized in him. He has made a promise. This spirit is for you. I will give you my spirit. Jesus says these words. It is better. He says unto his disciples, it's better that I'm not with you. It's better that I go away. Now, I, I just... What's better than Jesus being right? And like how many of us just like wish Jesus was just standing here right now? Yeah? But what's better than Jesus here with us? Jesus inside us. And he says, so I ascend back to my throne to give you my spirit. I'm going to place my spirit in you. He tells the first believer standing there when he ascends back to heaven to go do this, he says, wait right here. Wait here in Jerusalem until my spirit comes upon you with power, and then you'll be my witnesses. Wait until I start to make that transformation in you. Yes, believing in Jesus, having a faith in Jesus is, is mental. It's believing. It's truly believing. But it's also very, very deeply spiritual. 
as God places his spirit on us and transforms us. If you haven't been baptized, next Sunday we're, we're doing baptisms. And if that's you, if you've never been baptized and you would like to be baptized, please see, see one of us after church. Take on those promises of God for yourself. Be made new. Okay? Verse 7, it says there are about 12 men in all. Here's what I want you to hear. Ephesus becomes a profound church. Starts with 12 pretty ill-equipped men. Sounds familiar? Right? Sounds like every church I've ever been a part of. Right? Not just because they've been a part of it. Don't, I heard that. Right? Yeah. Every church I know of starts with a lot of really ill-equipped dudes. Right? Men and women that love Jesus and really want to see something cool happen. And, and really, honestly, it, it, it takes a while for, for people to be equipped to do what it takes to be a church and see people come to Jesus, be transformed by Jesus. Verse 8, and Paul entered in the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them, meaning the Jewish people, about the kingdom of God. But then some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, which is what they called Christianity, before the congregation. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with them, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And so same thing, if you've been here for the last few weeks, Paul goes in, really has a heart to reach Jews and, and to tell them about Jesus, the fulfillment of, of all God's promises. He wants to do that, but they don't all come to faith, and, and Paul often gets frustrated. And so this time, now he goes out to the halls of Tyrannus, a very non-Jewish place to reach non-Jewish people. And so he's now got, at minimum, at least a dual approach. Some Jewish, some non-Jewish, as he's got two different audiences that he is approaching. Verse 10, it says, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, I just want you to understand this. As we read through passages in Scripture, sometimes it just feels like stuff happens overnight. And here's what happens. We know for sure Apollos was there for months. Priscilla and Aquila show up there. I don't know how long they're there for. Paul now is there for two years. If you're a note taker, I, just, I put it this way. Transformation in people and in culture takes time. We tend to read two or three verses about Paul and think it was fast when it often took him years. Right? Sometimes as leaders, we read the things that Paul does or accomplishes or God does through him in a city, and we see it in just two, three, four verses in one short paragraph. And we're like, man, this had to have happened overnight. Why is it not happening overnight for us? Right? I know how dumb it is, but we still do it. Right? But I love that it just says, listen, he was there for two years. Verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them. And the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So here's the story. God is using Paul in some crazy, unique miraculous ways, right? People are being delivered from all kinds of things, right? Stuff is happening around Paul. Paul is proclaiming Jesus, and Jesus is just changing the landscape of Ephesus. But here's what happens. Some Jewish itinerant exorcists, so these people that are here, that they want to do the same thing, but they don't want to follow Jesus. They just want the same power. So they begin to preach by the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. Like, I don't really know him. But that guy, right? Okay. Power versus authority. 
Some want the transforming power Jesus offers through the gospel, but they don't want the authority over our lives that Jesus requires. We want Jesus to change us, but then we still want to live our own way. I know, that would never happen to you, right? That's what they want. They want the power, but they don't want to submit to the lordship of Jesus. They want what he does, but they don't want to have to do anything for him. Is that fair? Verse 13, let's back up that one verse and start again. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them. I love this. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. I want to be that guy where like evil's like, I've heard of that guy, Jeff, right? Like, I don't... I don't want that kind of fight it might bring, but uh, it's just cool just the same, right? Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the, the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them all, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So I don't really want that because there's a little risk there, right? Jesus I know. Paul I've heard of. Like Paul's making a dent. Right? I don't know you. Literally, throws them a beating, sends them out naked. Right? Because they want the power of Jesus without having the lordship of Jesus. They want to have these things changed. They want to have this power. It's like a, a, you know, like a Jedi in the force or something. They want this thing, right? But they don't want to submit to Jesus. So they end up submitting to a beating. And, get, and really get ran out naked out of the crowd. Verse 17, and they became known. Uh, excuse me, let me back up. It's not a formula, right? Being transformed in the image of Jesus is not a formula. It's not a magic statement, right? It's not even a magic prayer you say or anything like that. It's not a formula. It is a lifetime of relationship and submission to God through the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. That, that beating became known. And fear fell upon them all, I bet. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. I can just imagine that's true. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it became to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So here's what happens. The city, in the city, the story is getting out. The story of who Paul is and what he's done. The story of these other people who tried to imitate it and it didn't go well for them. The story of this is going out and the believers are growing in their faith and the non-believers are either coming to faith or really kind of weirded out by the whole thing, right? It's like we know this story, like we know the people it happened to. We've heard this story, right? This is the kind of thing that's like trending on social media in Ephesus, Like, this is what's taking place in our city. And it says that this this is becoming known. And so it deepens the faith of the people there. They begin to come and bring things that are of other worship practices. And they begin to lay them in the center and literally light them on fire, fire, a huge value in things. I want you to imagine a culture, a community that is so transformed that people begin to bring their false practices, maybe the car that they idolize, and they're just surrendering it. 
Maybe the, the Buddha that they burn incense to or, or the Quran that they read. It's that kind of thing. They're coming and bringing things and they're laying them down in the midst of the city and literally lighting them on fire and saying, you know what? This has stood between me and Jesus for too long. I'd rather be without it. And this city is being transformed. The gospel takes such deep root that the city is being transformed by the lives that are being transformed. People literally destroy costly things that were associated with evil. Verse 21, it says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. No little disturbance is the way of saying a riot breaks out. And the way, is a, the way is the early name for Christianity. So literally, a riot breaks out around Christianity, around Christians. Verse 24, it says, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. This was a massive trade. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades, and he said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. So literally there is a massive economy around these idols made of silver or wood or gold of Artemis. Most of you have heard of Diana, the goddess Diana. That's where we get Wonder Woman. I don't want to drift into that too far, all right? <laughs> Offend anybody in your comic movie passions. But there was a real worship, and Ephesus was known as the most deeply rooted city for the worship of Artemis, the goddess of the air. And literally, the change in the city is costing them money. This is the equivalent of if, if change happens so deeply in a community around us that like drug dealers went out of business and sex traffickers went out of business and porn just went away. Right? Why? Because people are being changed. And when people are being changed, cities change. And this city is so deeply impacted by people following Jesus that what happens is the people who profit off evil are losing money. And he starts literally a riot in the city. Verse 27, and there is danger not only of this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she, who all, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. Non-Jewish early church leaders, by the way. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can you just imagine two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis. This loud chant to where this theater in they're, they're in is literally shaking with the foot stomping and the yelling and the people. 
This is all around a city who had been completely given over to worshiping a goddess named Diana, an idol that they would literally fashion. There were people that would make them, and then everybody would worship them. And literally, people are losing business over this, and the city is being changed. The most profound worship of Artemis, that city, that city is being taken over by Christianity. By people who are following a living Jesus, not a dead idol. So much so that the people are losing so much money, they start a riot. Now, I don't want a riot here in the city of Cerritos or Los Alamos. I mean, like, but imagine the city were so impacted that literally it caused problems with people that profited off the old way. Imagine that we impacted a city so deeply just because we were transformed that our city began to change. Some of that began to take root in Los Alamitos. And I believe that God is going to do that here in Cerritos. That we're not targeting anyone. We're trying to put people out of it. We're just loving people and pointing them to Christ. And that in Christ, they are turning away from the practices that draw them away from Jesus. And in doing that, people will lose money. Now, I, I know that the bulk of men have struggled or do struggle with pornography, but just imagine, just imagine that business were put out of business because men stopped downloading porn. Just imagine. Just imagine drugs were no longer a factor in the neighborhood because people quit using them. Just imagine that young men and young women who run away from home stop being trafficked because people stop buying. That's what's taking root in Ephesus. Transformed people transforming a city. Let's finish this up. Verse 35, and it says, And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, crowd, I can't even say that sentence. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? And of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing that these things cannot be denied, you ought not be quiet and do nothing rash. For you've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Therefore, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with them have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. And there are pro-councils. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today. Since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Three years Paul spends in Ephesus. And near the end of that time, this literally, this city is so impacted that a riot breaks out. So much so that people that don't even follow Jesus are fearful for what's going on in the city and are calling for everyone to quiet down. Again, I say it again, I don't want to see us riot in the cities. That's not the outcome that this is the one case where that happens in all of Scripture. But what I can tell you for sure is there are many cities that are impacted by the gospel as we've been reading through them. We've read story after story of a city that is being so transformed by Christianity that Jewish religious leaders are chasing people out. Now we have non-Jewish people trying to chase them out of the city because people are changing. People are changing, and that is changing communities. If all of us change, how can our cities not be impacted? 
How can it not happen? And if we begin to love people and point them to the Jesus who lived and died and rose again and, and call them to the love of Christ and the transformation of Jesus, if we were to do that and they come to faith and they begin to be transformed by the Spirit, transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, how could our communities not change? How could our schools not become better places? How could our neighborhoods not become safer? How could our city not become better? Three things. I want you to take these away. Take them to your community groups. Take these notes that we've given you and unpack these in your community groups. First one. What change has the gospel caused in you? Your personal change is proof that the gospel is at work in you. Your change is also your story. Easiest way to share Jesus with other people is to tell your story how God has changed you. What is the change that's taken place in your life? Next one, transforming gospel. Transform, transform people. How does your story of transformation get told? If Jesus has transformed a part of you or all of you, are you making sure that your story is getting told? Who are the people around you that you can share the story of how God has impacted you and transformed you? Who are those people? Is it your family or your coworkers or the students that sit next to you in class or the people in your neighborhood or the people that you, you know, go to the same store or you sit in the same restaurant who serve you in the same place all the time? Who are the people that you are telling your story to? Lastly, transform city. How does your particular transformation impact the community? Where are you committed to giving away the change that you've been given? We often watch people who come to faith and, and, and uh, are healed of an addiction or something else that go back into the addiction community and work in places. Of course, after they're stronger and after they've gotten some time clean and sober and they go back into that community and they go back and serve in that community. There are stories all over the place of people that have been a parts of prostitution and they go back out into that community and they serve the women that are, that are embroiled in that trade. Where are the places in our community we can take where God has changed us and we can go back out and give it away? Let's pray. Jesus, you are a living God, not a dead piece of wood or silver or gold. You were the Jesus who lived and died and rose again. You were the Jesus that is God who became flesh. You are the Jesus who hears our voice, who saves our soul, who transforms our lives. And you're the Jesus who speaks to us today. Jesus, we need you. Jesus, I pray that your words would go forward today. Anything I said that is not of you, let it, be, let it just be lost. Because Jesus, my words do nothing, but your words give us life. And now as we pause and we reflect and we take communion, I pray that you would encourage us and equip us and strengthen us in your gospel. Just as your servant Paul said, for as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. So Jesus, as we pass this out, May we reflect. May we hold it contemplating you. And then as we take it together as a family, help us to be transformed into your image. It's in your name we pray. Amen.